This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Just a quick heads up before we get started. Today's episode discusses images of child sexual abuse and how they are detected online. Okay, here's the show. This story starts with the stay-at-home dad of a toddler in San Francisco, a dad named Mark. And in February 2021, his son developed um, a pain in his penis. It was red, um, a little swollen, and Mark was worried about it. That's reporter Kashmir Hill. She covers technology and privacy for the New York Times. Kashmir recently wrote about Mark and what happened to him. He grabbed his Android smartphone and took a few photos uh, for the doctor. Mark and his wife called the doctor's office and scheduled an emergency appointment for the next morning. And the nurse said, you know, send the photos to us so that the doctor can take a look before, um, before you guys meet and try to diagnose what's going on here. This was February of 2021, and because of the pandemic, no one wanted to meet in person for any longer than was absolutely necessary. The family went to their appointment. The child got antibiotics. Everything seemed fine. But two days after Mark takes the photos, um, he gets a notification on his Android that his Google account has been disabled. And there's a little message there that says there was um, harmful content in his account that was potentially illegal. And there's a learn more link, which he clicked, and it gave kind of a list of reasons why someone's Google account might be disabled. And on the list was child sexual abuse and exploitation. And Mark r- immediately realizes what happened. And he just thinks to himself, oh my God, you know, Google thought that was child porn. Mark, like many people, had his phone set to back up his photos to the cloud. And so when he took the photo, it automatically went up to his kind of Google Photos account. And at that point, Google scanned it, um, as it does all images, looking for uh, what's called child sexual abuse material, or CSAM. A Google AI saw the images of Mark's son's groin and flagged them as potentially abusive. And when that happens, um, it gets kind of forwarded to a human being, a content moderator that works for Google, and they look at it and they say yes or no. And if they say yes, that person's account gets locked. The account is reviewed by Google for other exploitative material, and the information is sent to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, often referred to as NCMEC. NCMEC is kind of the in-between for the technology giants and the police. Um, and I guess we, I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself in the story, but these images that Mark took for the doctor resulted in him being um, the target of an investigation by the San Francisco Police Department. 
that investigation would eventually clear Mark. And as far as the police were concerned, his good name was restored. But for Google, that was not enough. Mark lost his account, years of his digital life, and even after he showed proof that he'd been cleared, Google wouldn't give it back. Today on the show, how a tool designed to catch child exploitation ensnared at least two innocent fathers and potentially many more. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Many of the big tech companies use programs to search images on their services for child sexual abuse material, or CSAM. They don't store any abusive images themselves, but compare the digital signature of a user's pictures to that of known abusive content, usually images that abusers are known to have traded online. These digital signatures, called hashes, are collected by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and Google and other companies access them in order to police their platforms. But in 2018, Kashmir says, Google started to do something different, developing an AI tool that could look for new predatory images. And so they gave it, you know, images that were abusive and images that weren't, like maybe babies in a bathtub or kids Hmm. running through the sprinkler. I don't know exactly what images they used, but they developed this tool that can look for new images. And so, I mean, I think we can assume it's looking for um, nude images of children, Um, it's probably looking for uh, nude images with children where they appear to be with adults. Um, And so I don't know exactly what it's looking for, but it seems that, I mean, it seems like it's pretty good um, in that it caught these images that I would say in a different context, you know, these photos that Mark took could be, they could be CSAM, they could be abusive Hmm. or exploitative images. Um, In this context, it's a, you know, a parent, a worried parent taking photos of their sick child. Um, But you could imagine how this in a different context, if it was being exchanged in a different way with different intentions, could be CSAM. So I write a lot of stories about where AI gets something wrong. Here, I don't think it necessarily got it wrong. It just couldn't um, include the context in its decision-making. When you look at the way Google filters this information and, and the way the AI responds, are you able to say it's successful? Obviously, the company says it's successful, but it's such an interesting question. Like, what is success in in this context? So all we really have are the numbers. Um, And so in 2021, the year that this this happened, that Mark's images got detected, Google said that it found something like over 600,000 of these types of images, um, what's called CSAM. And that the company banned over 270,000 users um, who had, you know, these images in their account. And, you know, uh, I've now found 
two false positives, but I, you know, um, I have to assume that many of those are are not false positives. In part because the allegations are so awful, Kashmir said it's nearly impossible to know how many of these so-called false positives might exist. I talked to one expert from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, an activist group, a digital liberties activist group. And he said, you know, there could be tens or hundreds or thousands of these kinds of cases and that people may be afraid to publicize them because it is such a horrific thing to be accused yeah. of. What happens to to someone in this scenario? You You mentioned that Mark's case was referred to law enforcement. What happened there? So Mark's images were detected by Google's AI. A person confirmed there that they look like CSAM. They send it out to NCMEC. And um, NCMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they said that over that last year, they got nearly 30 million um, of these reports, uh, which is about 80,000 per day. And a, a lot of the time, they are getting these known images that have been passed around the internet for decades now. And so they tend to focus on anything that is new or novel. Um, so they would focus on images like the ones that Mark took because they've never seen that before. That means that could be a new victim that could be saved. Um, and so they'll prioritize those when they send them to law enforcement. They send a tip to the San Francisco Police Department within days of Mark taking these images. And the San Francisco Police Department opened an investigation into him within a week. He didn't learn about it until December of 2021, many months hmm. later when he got an envelope in the mail from the police saying, basically, you were investigated. We served search warrants on Google and on your internet service provider. They'd requested everything in his Google account. And he knew none of that as it was happening? No, there had been gag orders attached to the search warrants because you don't want to make somebody who's you know actively abusing a child potentially aware right. of an investigation into them. And so he didn't find out about it until later. Uh, this this letter from the department included the name and contact information for the investigator. And so we called him up and the investigator said, yeah, I looked into you, uh, determined no crime was committed. And basically you're clear. Um, he said, but I, and so Mark said, but I, I still haven't gotten my Google account back. Like, can you go tell them that I'm innocent so I can, I can get my account back? Cause you know, he'd lost so much data. Um, he you know, lost his email, lost his photos, videos, documents, even his phone number because he was a Google Fi user. Oh, wow. And the investigator said, I'm sorry, like, I can't help you with that. You're going to have to talk to Google. And what did he do? Um, so he had already at this point appealed and tried to get his Google account back and been told no. But he was able to get an incident report from the police department that said, and I've seen this report says, you know, no crime occurred here. And he sent that to Google, and they still said, no, um, we're not reinstating your account. And a couple of months ago, he got a notice that his account was being permanently deleted. Mark is in his 40s, and he'd been using various Google services for years. When he lost his account, the digital archive of his life was essentially vaporized. He lost kind of the first years of photos of his son. Um, he lost you know, his email for over a decade. He lost contact information for, you know, old colleagues, friends, everything that is kind of casually in your Gmail account, um, attachments on emails. Just, just you know, just a lot of, of 
of data. Because um, I think a lot of us, he, like a lot of us, has been told, you should back everything up to the cloud. Because if you lose your right. phone, you lose everything. And so he kind of had trusted that everything he put into Google's cloud was going to be there when he wanted it. But overnight, it was just gone. One of the things I was so struck by in your story was not just the sort of onerous path that Mark had to go down to try to figure out what had happened, but also the very understandable shame around trying to explain this and, you know, that anyone who who heard about it or was tainted just sort of said, like, no, we're not touching that. Sorry, forget it. And it, it, I was struck by the fact that he even just went by a first name with you. I just think this is kind of the m- most horrible thing you can be accused of. When someone hears that you've been accused of something, it just raises a little bit of doubt in their mind. Like, mm-hmm. well, what if? Like, wh- why would you be accused of that? There was Mark and there's another father I found in Texas where this exact same thing happened. I mean, these are two cases where people were investigated by law enforcement for photos that they took that they really just were thinking, this is private to me. Um, I'm not planning on sharing this with anybody besides a medical professional. Uh, It's it's kind of unfathomable. I mean, it is really really telling about the world that we live in today, Uh, just how how easily your privacy can be breached and just even you know this is this is an engineer this is someone who's thought about how technology works and still can be surprised by um the degree to which these companies are just looking into our most private of spaces because they own our most private of spaces these photos that mark had that they sort of trip this wire because they were backed up. Did did he think of that as something that he was doing or was that just like a natural step? You know, I don't think he had considered that at all. Like, I think he, like a lot of people, just turned on backup so that if he loses his phone, he doesn't lose all these photos and videos. And I asked Google about this um, because one of uh, this technologist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation said that he thought that kind of scanning was intrusive, that essentially this is a private family album that Google shouldn't be looking at. And Google said, you know, they only scan when an affirmative action is taken, um, such as sending an image via Google chat uh, or sending it via Gmail. But they mm-hmm. said they also consider backing up your photos to their cloud to be an affirmative action. When we come back, a doctor asks you to send in a photo and doesn't realize the risk. Hey everybody, it's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. Hi. 
This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. One of the places that I think this touches a a very specific aspect of life now is where it butts up against telehealth. Obviously, telehealth has exploded in use during the pandemic, and it makes sense. But it didn't seem to me like doctors, at least, understood the, the weight of what they were asking for or the potential repercussions here. I reached out to the American Academy of Pediatrics because I wanted to ask them, have you heard of this before? And the spokesperson at the American Academy of Pediatrics said, no, I've never, I've never heard of a situation like this before. Like, let me find an expert here who can talk to you. And so she put me in touch with um, a doctor who specializes in child abuse and sits on one of the um, the Academy's councils uh, on that topic. And she told me, you know, Parents should never take these photos. She said, you should never photograph your children's genitalia. Um, and I was surprised by that advice. I mean, I get it. She said, you just, you don't want your children to get used to anyone taking photographs like that of them. Hmm. But I but I pushed back a bit because I said, you know, we are in a pandemic. We're increasingly using telehealth. I mean, this is the kind of dream with doctors is to be able to take photos of rashes um, or, you know, some kind of injury and just send it to them so they can quickly diagnose it. And she said, okay, well, you know, if you absolutely have to, you know, take these photos, but make sure you're not backing them up to the cloud and delete them immediately. But that advice, which seems utterly logical when you think about it in this context, is something that a lot of parents and clinicians have never considered. And I asked her, do you think most physicians realize this? And she said, no, I don't think so. And ever since my story came out, I have been hearing from pediatricians, from pediatric surgeons specifically, uh, that they had no idea that this was a risk and that they routinely asked parents to send photos. Specifically, pediatric surgeons, there's some surgery that they do that they want a photo afterwards because there's like a telltale bulge that will tell them if something has gone wrong. Um, And just working on this story, there were so many parents who have told me, oh my gosh, like I had to take photos like that, you know, after my son was circumcised and we were monitoring to make sure it's healing okay. I mean, it's, these are not extreme edge cases. This is kind of a somewhat normal part of parenting in the modern age. You know what I'm going to say next, right? I have no, (laughs) you've taken a photo like this. My toddler, when he was younger, 
had a rash and it was weird and it didn't seem quite like diaper rash. There was something strange about it. I photographed it and I put it on our, you know, encrypted patient portal for our pediatrician to look at. He ended up having shingles and yeah, and he was fine. But when I read your story, I realized I still had those photos on my iPhone and they were automatically backed up to the cloud. And it made me wonder, like, oh, God, I did something purely to provide information to our doctor's office without thinking about the potential consequences. I just think this is so normal as a parent. And and I think it's kind of just a problem more generally with, with kind of CSAM and childish sexual abuse material. I mean, your story is incredible. I mean, needing to take a photo like that, getting that kind of diagnosis. I mean, you're doing it to improve your child's health, right? Not to abuse them in any way, not to exploit them in that, any way. Um, but this category of images is just so toxic that you, you can run afoul of it. And as a parent, we just don't think about our kids that way. How do the companies think about this stuff? Do, do they recognize that there have been errors here? Or are they saying, you know, this issue is so serious that we don't care if if Mark or someone else gets kind of swept by the wayside? So Google told me that it stood by its decision in Mark's case um, and in the other case that I found, which um, honestly surprised me. Even though in in both the cases I found Mark and the other father in Texas, law enforcement investigated and cleared them, said that, uh, you know, basically as a misunderstanding, no crime occurred. Google was not willing to rethink their decision. And, you know, in a way, I get it. They're a huge company. They have so many users. I think for them, it's probably easier as soon as somebody has kind of put an image of a naked child on their servers, it's just easier for them to cut it off rather than try to adjudicate each case and do fact-finding and, and find out why they took an image. And, you know, Google's a private company. For them, they can, can draw the line wants. where they want to. I just think it's it's kind of, you know, this kind of corporate cruelty to say, yes, even though law enforcement has cleared you, you know, we're not giving you your account back. Because Google is so dominant in so many different areas, a mistake like this by a parent is kind of just, has has such repercussions. You are actually making me think about a story you wrote a very long time ago about trying to cut the big tech companies out of your life. And what is striking about your reporting on this issue is not just what happened to Mark and not just how the sort of AI and human interface work together, but the large role that Google played in this man's life and the fact that losing access to one part of it automatically wipes it out everywhere else. And I wonder if that resonated for you, if you thought again, oh man, this this man's life, like this huge chunk of it was just gone because these private companies play such a large role. I use Google in a lot of my life too because it's a great company. It's just such a great service that it's very easy for it to kind of creep up and then all of a sudden you're using all of these different Google services. The degree to which you're relying on them, it's huge and you don't don't realize it until something like this happens and then you're cut off. Yeah, it just has made me think a lot about what I would do if all of a sudden overnight I lost access to Google. It would be, it would be, very, very difficult for me. 
Right now, the big tech companies are trying to figure out how to find and stop child sexual abuse material on their platforms. Last year, Apple planned to launch expanded CCM detection in the cloud, much like Google's tool, but they scrapped that plan after pushback from a lot of privacy advocates. I asked Kashmir how the other big tech companies think about the issue. NICMEC, um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, does keep stats on basically how many reports it gets from each company. And I think Facebook, last I looked, was by far the leader on how many images Mm. it's reporting. Um, But I do think that's a big kind of question mark for me after this, is just what those numbers mean. And, you know... um, I don't know if there's anybody who's digging through the images and looking at how often they're right, how often they're wrong, how often they're misinterpreted. Once you're kind of accused of having it, it just has these very big repercussions. So I think it's maybe important that we kind of examine those numbers more uh, and understand, just understand what's happening to the in this ecosystem. And what what disturbed me with this story was that there was no there was no feedback loop. Um, you know, Google detects the images, sends them to NICMEC, NICMEC sends them to the police, and there's there's the information doesn't go back in the other direction. Hmm. And so NICMEC never learned, you know, from the San Francisco Police Department um, that Mark was innocent. And so those images he took of his son went into NICMEC's database of known child sex abuse material. So they're now in that database. And when I told um, him and his wife that, his wife was like, wow, I still have them on my iPhone. I need to delete those images because if, you know, Apple did roll out that program of scanning for known child sex abuse material, this would flag her account. Nick Mick said that they reported over 4,260 victims of, of child sexual abuse and exploitation to the police they counted Mark's son. He was one of those victims. Um, and so you just don't have kind of a correction that's happening on these these numbers. What kind of response did you get after this story came out? I heard from a lot of pediatricians and pediatric surgeons just thanking me for writing this story, saying they hadn't realized this, they hadn't thought about it. I heard from so many parents who just felt like they dodged a bullet, usually because they had an, an iPhone. I've heard from other people um, who have been and who've been flagged uh, have had this happen to them um, in in different ways. And I've heard from activists, many activists kind of tagging me in tweets saying, we warned about this. We told you this is coming. You know, we're not surprised. Um, But I still, I I think they're, even they are still shocked, even if they're not surprised that this thing that they warned about is, is happening to somebody and having this effect on their life. Kashmir Hill, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me on. Kashmir Hill is a tech reporter at The New York Times, where she focuses on privacy. And that is our show for today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a request for you become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.